Hi, everyone. This is Grace is on the case. I'm Gracelyn Keller, and today we're discussing a killer who actually died due to his own stupidity while he was in the process of committing triple homicide. And while this may sound like a righteous twist of fate, it actually left those who survived him a lot more questions than answers, including just how many victims he was actually responsible for killing. This is the strange case of Melvin Ted Carr. At 4.30 a.m. on April 20th, 1977, Indianapolis, Indiana native Harriet Carr noticed her garage door was slightly open. Confused, she went out to investigate. She opened the door fully and entered the garage to find her husband, 62-year-old Melvin Carr, who went by Ted, lying motionless on the floor. She was hit in the face by the distinct smell of exhaust fumes and realized the vehicle parked in the garage was running. She immediately assumed carbon monoxide was at play. Harriet rushed to turn off the car, hoping that she wasn't too late, only to discover her husband was not the only person in the garage. In the open trunk of Carr's vehicle, Harriet saw three people, a woman, a teenage girl, and a young boy. Harriet bolted from the garage screaming, prompting neighbors to call the police. Authorities arrived at the scene quickly after, and all four people in the garage were pronounced dead. An investigation began immediately, and it didn't take long before the three bodies found in Carr's trunk were identified. They were 24-year-old Karen Nils, her two-year-old son Robert Nils, and a 17-year-old girl named Sandra Harris. Cause of death for all three found in the trunk, plus Carr, was ruled as carbon monoxide poisoning, and it was determined that both Karen and Sandra had been sexually assaulted. But questions remained surrounding Carr. Was he a predator, or was he a victim too? At the scene, investigators found a handkerchief in Carr's hand and also discovered a loaded 25 caliber revolver in his pocket. They also noted a vacuum cleaner hose leading from the car's tailpipe and into the trunk of the car. After the preliminary investigation, it became pretty clear to police what had happened. It appeared that Carr had abducted three victims, most likely using his gun to gain control over them. Forensics later proved that he had sexually assaulted the two women, which must have occurred at some point before he brought them all to the garage. Investigators believed that it was after the assault that he forced the three into the trunk. He then drove home and parked his car in the garage. Once in the closed garage, he brought out the vacuum hose, inserting one end into the tailpipe and the other end into the trunk. Once this was all set up, he closed and locked the trunk, turned on his car, and left his victims to die. After some time had passed, it appeared Carr went to confirm that his victims were, in fact, dead. Authorities surmised that he had used the handkerchief found in his hand to cover his nose and mouth in an effort to protect himself from the toxic fumes and open the trunk. But the thin handkerchief proved to be no match for the large amount of toxic fumes that had been pumped into the trunk. When Carr opened his trunk, he was hit with a large quantity of carbon monoxide gas himself, causing him to pass out, falling to the floor. And because he hadn't turned off the car prior to opening his trunk or provided any other ventilation for fumes to dissipate, 
He too died as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning, his vehicle continuing to fill the garage with toxic gas while he lay unconscious on the garage floor. So authorities were left with four bodies and a tragic situation that seemed to be masterminded by one of the poisoning victims themselves. It left them wondering, who exactly was Ted Carr? Carr was no stranger to police. In October of 1947, he was arrested after kidnapping a husband and wife who were hitchhiking through Indianapolis. They were able to escape Carr and went to the police to report what he had done to them. The woman testified that after offering them a ride, Carr drove them to a secluded location and pulled a gun on them. Using the weapon to control them, he handcuffed the man to a trailer hitch and took the woman a bit further away, where he raped her. After a few hours, Carr let both of them go. Charges for kidnapping and rape were initially filed against him, but were later dropped with little explanation. Much later, in 1971, Carr was convicted of conning an elderly blind woman out of her life savings. After giving him power of attorney, Carr left the handicapped 81-year-old widow with only $30 in her savings account. He didn't serve any time in prison. Shortly after that, he became a suspect in another sexual assault case of a female minor. He was never officially charged in connection with this case, though. Later in 1971, Carr kidnapped a 14-year-old girl and took her to Mexico, where he sexually assaulted her. He was charged and convicted for this crime and was finally going to be sent to prison. Unfortunately, he only received a five-year sentence. While serving his time, correction officers found multiple hand-drawn maps in Carr's cell, depicting the interior of the girl's home, as well as the home of the elderly woman who he had stolen from. The documents also included in-depth plans to murder both of them. Despite this huge red flag, Carr was released after only serving three years of his five-year sentence. So yeah, Carr was no stranger to the Indianapolis authorities and had committed quite a few heinous acts during his life. And while the final crime he committed was pretty cut and dry, his death left behind one glaring mystery that police feared would now never be solved. It began in February of 1967 when 35-year-old divorced mother Lois Williams and her 17-year-old daughter Karen were reported missing. Lois's father had last heard from his daughter and granddaughter in January, and when he had failed to get a hold of them since, he called the police and asked them to perform a welfare check at Lois's home. When they arrived at the address, police reported that Lois's house was extremely clean and nothing appeared to be out of place, missing, or otherwise indicative of foul play. Lois and Karen's winter coats were even still in the closet as if they were home. This was suspicious to police, and a missing persons report was filed for the two. Friends of Lois's said she knew Ted Carr well. Carr owned an auto repair shop where Lois frequently took her car for repairs. It was also rumored among people who knew them both that Lois had a sexual relationship with Carr. Now, I've also seen it reported that Lois's 17-year-old daughter Karen was also rumored to have had a sexual, quote, relationship, unquote, with Carr. Carr was 52 years old at this point, and Karen, again, was 17. So if this is true, that's not a, quote, relationship. That's straight-up grooming, and I'm going to call it like I see it. Super icky. 
And the legal age of consent in Indiana at this time was 16. So Carr engaging in sexual activity with Karen was actually not considered illegal. But I still see it as an inappropriately older man preying on a young girl. Not okay, even if it isn't technically illegal. And just a quick sidebar, Indiana is actually voting on a new bill this year in 2023 to make it illegal for anyone over the age of 22 to engage in sexual acts of any kind with someone between 16 and 18 years old. This would protect those who are technically legally able to consent from predators using the current loophole in Indiana state law who are attempting to groom and take advantage of minors 16 to 18 years old. This is a great step forward in protecting our young people, and I wish more states would pass laws like this. Okay, anyway, sidebar over, let's get back to the case at hand. So the last time Lois and Karen were seen was at Carr's auto repair shop. It's unclear if the two were there for repairs on Lois's vehicle or just there to visit Carr, but multiple witnesses placed them at the shop. One witness, Calvin Campbell, a neighbor and employee of Carr's, said that Lois and Karen left the repair shop that evening with Carr in his vehicle. Hours later, Carr returned alone and appeared angry, telling Campbell that he was upset with Lois. His story was that she had gone into a bar and refused to come out, and so Carr took off and headed back to the shop. After this exchange, Carr had Calvin close up the shop for the night. The following morning, when Campbell arrived back at the shop for work the next day, Carr's dad came running toward him, yelling that Carr had been mugged. Campbell rushed over to find Carr outside on the ground. He was beaten and bloody and completely out of it. Despite the fact that Carr had appeared to be the victim of a clearly violent crime, he urged his father and Campbell that he did not want the police called. Campbell went inside to check if anything had been stolen from the shop or otherwise damaged during this attack. Nothing was missing that he could see, but Carr's vehicle, the same one Campbell saw him drive off in with Lois and Karen the last night, was on a lift. It had been cleaned spotless with a pressure washer, both inside and out, with what appeared to be particular focus on the trunk. After this incident, Campbell quit his job at the auto shop. Campbell's wife, Marine, actually also believes that she was almost a victim of Carr's. Both she and her husband knew the suspicions surrounding Carr as well as his criminal past, so Marine was definitely wary of him, and this extra caution probably saved her life. She claims that one night after Campbell had quit his job working for Carr, that Carr called her and said that he was having trouble breathing and was going to go to the hospital. Campbell had gotten a new job as a night janitor, so he wasn't home at this time. Later, Carr called the home again from what he said was the hospital, requesting that she go check and see if he had left the garage door open. He said that he couldn't remember if he had shut it or not and was worried that his tools may be stolen if it was ajar. Now, remember, the Campbells were actually neighbors of Carr's, so on the surface, this wasn't like a super odd request. Like, he didn't randomly call his old employee's house and ask his wife to drive across town and check to see if the garage was left open. But Maureen got a weird feeling from it nonetheless, and because of what she knew about Carr and his past, she decided not to go. It was later corroborated that Carr had actually been a patient at the hospital that evening, but one of his nurses discovered that he had vanished from his room and never checked out. This was hours before the phone call to the Campbell residence was made. 
Another neighbor of theirs also reported seeing his car parked about a block away that evening around the time that the call was made. So with this knowledge, Marine thinks that Carr used his garage landline to call her with the request, and she believes this was actually a failed attempt at kidnapping her. So there's that. But circling back to the Lois and Karen case, investigators searched Carr's shop early on in the investigation when it was apparent that this was the last place that they were seen. They found personal documents of Lois's in a suitcase at the shop, but no other evidence was discovered that tied either her or Karen to the shop. So police didn't believe they had enough evidence to charge Carr with the crime. The case was pretty much stalled after that. Authorities just didn't have the information or evidence they needed, but they were really suspicious of Carr. But after the triple homicide in the garage and Carr's own death, the investigation into Lois and Karen's disappearance picked up again. They hoped to find evidence in his estate that definitively tied him to their disappearance. Now, Carr's widow, Harriet, was not too keen on this idea, but after a legal battle, police got the green light to excavate Carr's yard, basement, and garage floor. During the investigation, two patches of cement were found that were much newer than any of the other materials in those areas. These sites were carefully excavated and examined, but unfortunately, Lois and Karen's remains were not found. The investigation stalled once again, and to this day, detectives have yet to locate Karen or Lois. Some investigators believe that they were not allowed an adequate amount of time to fully search Carr's property, and that Lois and Karen may still be there. Carr was known to be a very handy craftsman, and his basement was completely remodeled by him alone shortly after the two went missing. There are some that believe that the pair's remains are still inside of the house within those remodeled walls of the basement, which police were not allowed to search on that initial search warrant that they excavated the property with. The home that once belonged to Carr still stands today in Indianapolis, and it's entirely possible that Lois and Karen's remains are still on the property. But if not, where are they? I also think there's a good chance that Carr has had more victims, not just in Indiana, but across multiple states. He traveled pretty frequently throughout his adult life for what he told his wife Harriet was, quote, business, unquote, but never elaborated. And one has to wonder how many business trips an auto repair shop owner would need to make. It's possible that there may be other victims in locations that he traveled to, but because of the age of this case, there are so few records of his movements, it's nearly impossible to dig into this. Regardless of this possibility, it's almost certain that Carr was responsible for the disappearances of Karen and Lois Williams, and he most likely took the location of their remains to the grave with him. But I still hope that one day they will be found so that their families can have the closure they deserve. So thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. All of my source material is listed in the show notes and on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me there or through Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. I'll see you all next week for our next case. Mm-hmm.